Amen. Yeah, clap. That's a praise. Hallelujah. That's right. Glory. Okay, you can sit down if you'd like, or once again, you can stand. I don't care, but you're probably going to want to sit. If you are an elementary school aged child, you may head out this door to kind Mr. Duncan, and he will uh, he will lead the way. If you are in uh, uh, middle school, um, you may walk head out the back door. You can follow Deacon. He's waving there. If you're in mid school, you can head out there to our mid school group and go uh, go have fun and go join our Vine Kids Ministry. So. Wow, I'd rather just keep on singing, but uh, Don works so hard to do all those sets and stuff. It's uh, improv and stuff. So we're gonna, you're going to have to listen to me preach for a while. But um, glory, that was wonderful. So how is everybody doing today? Hanging in there? Good. That's, there we go. Man, everybody, usually it's like, how's everybody doing? Everybody kind of goes, oh, no. Y'all are awake and ready to roll, so this is great. So let's just jump on into it. Um, we are in uh, week uh, 28 of, I think it's 28, I mean, who's counting, right? But I think we're in week 28 of our uh, journey through the book of John, and uh, we'll be in chapter 7 today, starting in verse 14. And the context of this is, if you remember, uh, John has, he's writing this book. Not everybody tells you why they're writing a book, right? But but John does, in the end of this book, he gives away the secret of why he's writing it, which is in uh, chapter 20, verse 31. He says, but these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's why he wrote the book. He wrote the book so that we would see who Jesus is, believe in him, that he is the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ, the son of the living God, and that by believing in him, he would have life in his name. That's the point of the whole book. Now, in doing that, he's doing a whole bunch of things. And he starts out, and he, uh, if you remember way back, he's talking about in, in chapter one, and he is ex- proclaiming the deity of Jesus. He is the incarnate son of God. He is God with skin on. And he is who's come to save us. And he will hammer home, two things will get hammered home in this book over and over and over again. There's the deity of Jesus, that Jesus is God, and that you have to believe in him to be saved, that faith is how you are saved. So those two things get repeated over and over and over again as themes in this book. In chapter 7, if you remember back uh, to last week, Jesus was going down to Jerusalem. But before that, the last time he was there was back in chapter 5. And in chapter 5, he had healed this uh, crippled man who'd been crippled for 38 years uh, near the Bethesda pool in Jerusalem. But he did it on the Sabbath, which made the Jews, uh, when John refers to the Jews, he means the, the Jewish uh, leadership. They got upset because he did it on the Sabbath. And so then that began this discourse in chapter five, where Jesus was explaining his relationship to the father. And we went through all of that is this incredibly deep theology that is in chapter five. And then Jesus leaves uh, Judea, the region that Jerusalem is in, and he goes up to Galilee and does ministry there. He feeds 5,000. He walks on the water. Uh, There's this discourse of, I am the bread of life. And then he begins to head back down to Jerusalem. If you remember last week, uh, Trev had talked about how uh, there were uh, his his brothers, or his half-brothers, I guess, and uh, uh, there were different groups that were saying different things about, about Jesus. Some were saying he was... He was, he's a good man. Other people were saying he was, he was a, uh, he's, he's deceiving everybody. He's a liar. And that's the context that we run into when we start 
here in verse 14 is that Jesus has been here. I don't know exactly how long it's been, but he has gone up back up to the north to uh, Galilee, traveled back down into Judea, the region where Jerusalem is, and he is now uh, coming to Jerusalem. So before we read, let's pray, and then we'll get into the text. Lord Jesus, we just come to you today, and we, you are our God, and we just confess that. You are our Savior. You are the Lord of all creation, and we thank you that you've given us life. Thank you for loving us. We come to you just as always in great need, and we need you to help us understand what the text says and how it applies to our life and how we can obey what you want us to do. Would you guide us today? Would the Holy Spirit give us understanding? Would you convict us where we need to be convicted? Empower us where we need power to walk with you, Lord Jesus. I don't know what is going on personally in your own life today, but I pray that you would pray for someone around you. As you say here often, just be in the habit of praying for other people, of constantly thinking of others and interceding on their behalf. Ask that God would teach them today what he wants to teach them. If they need to be encouraged, that they would be encouraged. If they need to be rebuked, that they be rebuked, but that the Holy Spirit would be the one who does it. Pray in your own heart that God would teach you what he wants you to know today. We just come before you, Lord, and we just, we humbly open the word of God. We want to be people of a contrite heart who tremble at your word. And so we come to you just in great thankfulness and in great humility. Please teach us today, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so we are in uh, chapter 7, verse 14 of the book of John. So Jesus had apparently uh, come down to Jerusalem, and in verse 14 it says, Not until halfway through the feast, it's the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths, did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews were amazed and asked, How did this man get such learning without without having studied? And Jesus answered, Well, my teaching is not my own. It comes from him who sent me. If anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. He who speaks on his own does so to gain honor for himself, but he who works for the honor of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? You're demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who is trying to kill you? Jesus said to them, I did one miracle, and you were all astonished. Yet, because Moses gave you circumcision— Though actually it did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a child on the Sabbath. Now, if a child can be circumcised on the Sabbath, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing the whole man on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. Okay, clear to everybody? So we're supposed to, uh, it's one of those passages where one of the things when you're teaching through a whole book, verse by verse, is um, sometimes you you hit a passage and it's like, boom, it's easy. I mean, it's right there. And then other times... uh, it's not quite so clear. So we're going to walk through this together and, and see hopefully what the, the Lord uh, wants to teach us here. So, uh, so Jesus, it says, not until halfway through the feast. Uh, why he waited until halfway, I have no idea. Um, as Treb said last week, it, maybe he was like Obi-Wan Kenobi slinking through the Death Star, you know? So I don't know if he was, you know, wearing, had a hood on or, uh, I don't know, but it says that before that he had gone down in verse 10, he went in secret down to Jerusalem. Uh, maybe he's doing some recon and pulling a Nehemiah. He's going up in secret to see, hear what people were saying about him. 
But he waits until halfway or three days or four days through this feast, and he goes up to the temple courts, and he begins to teach. John doesn't say what he taught, which is fascinating. I'm assuming he's obviously teaching about the kingdom and some of the things that he's been teaching about. But he doesn't go about what he's actually been saying. So there are lots of questions when I uh, read the Bible that don't get answered, and those are two of them. But what was he saying? But he was saying something so incredible that these Jews— who are, when you, when you see the, the Jews, capital J, I want, to th- want you to think of the Jewish kind of religious order, uh, the religious leaders, the Pharisees and Sadducees, and these guys and the scribes, they were part of the Jewish religious uh, leadership, but they had a lot of political sway as well. And they are generally in contrast or contrary to Jesus in the book of John. And so these Jews, though, whatever Jesus was teaching, they were amazed or astonished or marveled. And they said, how did this man get such learning? without having studied. So see, they couldn't get away from two things with Jesus. They couldn't get away from the signs or the miracles that he did because they had the crippled guy and he was crippled and they all knew he was crippled and then Jesus did something and he was walking. So they can't say, well, he wasn't really healed because he was. And then they also can't get away from his teaching because he teaches things and these guys have never heard anything like this before. They're amazed and these are smart people. They are incredibly educated But they said, how did he get such learning? So they don't deny that he has all this incredible learning of the Scripture. But they said, without having studied. See, Jesus had not passed through formal theological education. He didn't go through the rabbinic schools. It wasn't like Jesus was uh, like Paul, who had studied under Gamaliel and had all these, this uh, process. Jesus was a rabbi, but he hadn't, he didn't have the, he didn't have a sheepskin on the wall. And so they, they're thinking, how? They have no context for this, for how someone can learn without having gone through their system. And so Jesus answers, and of course doesn't answer their question like he usually does. He doesn't say, well, I went to, you know, whatever, Nazareth Bible College or whatever. He just says, uh, he's like, well, I got got an, an online degree. But he said, listen, Jesus answered my teaching. Instead of answering the question, he just goes to teach, right? He says, well, my teaching isn't even mine. So that clears things up for them. It comes from him who sent me. And if we've read the previous couple chapters in John, him who sent Jesus is God the Father. So Jesus is saying, listen, the things that I'm teaching that are so amazing, and they're not even mine, they're from the Father. If anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. He who speaks on his own does so to gain honor for himself. He who works for the honor of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. Remember what the people had been saying about Jesus. One group said, well, he's a good man. And the other group, back in verse uh, 11 or 12, said, no, he's a deceiver. I mean, a deceiver is someone who intentionally knows that they're lying and is trying to pull the wool over your eyes, right? Deceiver is not generally what we in the Scott family say. The Scots are truth tellers, right? Not that you're not liars, but we're truth tellers. We want to be positive. So uh, a deceiver would be the opposite of a truth teller, someone who knows the truth, chooses a lie, and then actively pursues that lie for, her own, for his own personal gain, right? Never happens today in society, but it's a joke. I mean, anybody who just watches, anybody does that all the time. But Jesus was not a deceiver, but they were saying, well, he has to be a deceiver because if the things that he is saying and the things that he are doing, if they're not true, then he's lying. Well, Jesus comes up, I think he's addressing them there. He says, if anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God. So he says, listen, if you want to know if, I've, if what I'm saying comes from God, choose to obey God, and then you'll know. 
he who speaks on his own does so to gain honor for himself. Nothing that Jesus said or did was to gain his own honor. Isn't that incredible? So absolutely contrary uh, to just basically the entire way that human beings behave. Most human, being, human behavior is to gain their own glory or to make their own way. But not Jesus. But he said, but he who works for the honor of the one who sent him is a man of truth. So Jesus, is, he was working and he came and suffered and died to honor his father. Isn't that amazing? I, I think I've read that in the Bible somewhere, that honoring your father and mother are important. And Jesus knew that and was demonstrating the reality of that as he honored his father. Because he is doing that, what he's saying is true, and he's a man of truth. He's just stated, basically, I'm not a deceiver, because I'm not even working for my own behalf. I'm working because of the one who sent me. I'm working to honor him so that what I say is true. There's nothing false about him. Wow, isn't that amazing? That's one thing you can, if someone says, who's Jesus? You can say, well, I know one thing for sure. There is nothing false about him, which I can't say for myself or anybody else that I know. But So Jesus kind of goes and he's, proving a point there, saying, listen, he's addressing these people. And I think the situation here is he is in the temple courts, and Jesus is talking to these Jewish leaders. I mean, it wasn't like they were in a—it was just a large public area. So you have the Jews here, these religious leaders. I think Jesus is addressing them, and there's also this crowd around there that we'll get to in just a second. So then Jesus goes and says, has not Moses given you the law? Rhetorical question. Yet not one of you keeps the law. It would be difficult for Jesus to say a more scandalous accusation than that. He's looking at these people, and they had based their entire system of life around the law. Uh, personally, their entire personal life, in their family life, their religious life, their community life, their, uh, their governmental structure, the entire paradigm of their existence was based around the law of Moses for the Jew, right? Because they had undergone a terrible discipline of the Lord, and they had all been exiled. And so when they came back from the exile, the few Jews that came back, they became really, really rigid about the law, super rigid about the law. And they created all these other, how do we, how do we know if we keep the rule? Well, what's it mean to do this? Well, let's make up a bunch of other rules so we make sure we don't break all the other rules that we know God. And in doing so, they created this giant legalistic system. So Jesus is coming up to them and he's saying, listen, you have the law, right? None of you keep it. I mean, it was a verbal, just a slap in the face to them. And then he asks a great question. Uh, why are you trying to kill me? I love this. It's, uh, we always kind of, there's this picture of Jesus as this sort of uh, meek with coiffed hair and all this stuff, and, or whatever the word is, nice hair, and, and you know, with Jesus with the lamb. And, and Jesus is tender to the lamb, but he is very confrontational here. He's just speaking the truth. He says, none of you keep the law, and why are you trying to kill me? He's forcing the issue with them. The reason they were trying to kill him, of course, was because of what he just said. He just came up to them and said, you don't even keep the law that you say that you keep. You create your entire social and governmental structure around this truth, and you don't even do it. You're hypocrites to the core. And in verse 20, he says, you are demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Now, this is, the word for crowd there is a uh, word for crowd, or some of your Bibles might say multitude, um, but it's a, it's a word that is oftentimes said against the, uh, the, the kind of the rulers and the authorities, just the, just the folks, right? Just the people that were around Jesus listening to this discourse he was having with these Jewish leaders. He says this to the Jews, why are you trying to kill me? 
And the crowd says, why are you demon-possessed? I don't think that they're really accusing Jesus of being possessed by a demon, because uh, later on that will happen. Someone will say, well, you're doing the work. The devil is the one giving you the power to do your work. And Jesus answers very harshly to them. and talks about the unforgiv- uh, unpardonable sin and all those things. He doesn't even address it there. Uh, that culture equated mental illness with demon possession. So I think that they're probably telling Jesus that he's crazy. Uh, Jesus says, why are you trying to kill me to these Jews? And everybody says, who's trying to kill you? You're standing here talking. Nobody's trying to kill you. Nobody's trying to throw stones at you. I don't think that the general population was new of the plot to kill Jesus, which we know is there because in the first verse of this chapter, John says they were waiting there to kill him. So it's not like it's secret to John, but, and the, but the Jews already, er, this early on in the story, were trying to figure out how they could kill Jesus, which is what you try to do for the guy who comes and does good stuff on the Sabbath. So I, I, don't, I think that they're just basically telling Jesus that he's crazy. And he answers them and says this, listen, I did one miracle. You have one crippled guy, and I came up and I said, get up and walk. And he gets up and walks. And because of this, you, are all, you all marvel or you're all amazed or astonished. He says, yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it did not come from Moses, but from the patriarch. So what is he saying there? Um, so that circumcision was a sign. Anything You'll see the miracles of Jesus are called signs, like they point to something else, right? Jesus is not just doing miracles to do cool stuff like a magician. Jesus is doing miraculous things or signs to point to his deity. He's saying, I'm God, here's some bread. I'm God, there's one. It points to something else. So circumcision pointed to another thing. It was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. So if you go back in your Bibles to, to Genesis chapter 12 and 15, Uh, This is the Abrahamic covenant that God makes with Abraham. I will make you a father of many nations, and all people will be blessed through you. He says this, of course, to a a very old man and his very old wife who was postmenopausal, and he comes to them and says, I will make you the father of many nations, of course, which doesn't usually work out. And so Abraham... And this, through this miraculous thing, obviously he has, uh, he has a, he goes, tries to do an end run around and has uh, Ishmael, which has caused quite a few problems for the Jews. And then he has uh, on the, finally he and, he and Sarah, they trust the Lord and they get, and they get their son Isaac. So that covenant was God made a covenant with Abraham, right? It's a, called a unilateral covenant. God makes it with Abraham. He's going to do it whether Abraham is a good boy or not, Right? The sign of the covenant is circumcision, right? Without getting into gory details, uh, it's, if you think about reproduction and having kids, it's an appropriate sign for things, right? It's very, I'm going to trust you for things, so we're going to circumcise. So um, it is the sign that, and in chapter 17 of Genesis, you can go back and look, that's where that covenant comes in. That circumcision was given to Abraham and that all of your descendants are to circumcise their children to show that they are under that covenant of God. Okay? That makes sense? So when he says that Moses didn't even give it to you, it's because the Abrahamic covenant existed before the law and overarches the law of Moses. And the law of Moses was something that began and and ended underneath the umbrella of the Abrahamic covenant. So Moses, of course, incorporated that because they're Abraham's people. That gets incorporated into the law. But he says, so Moses gives you circumcision, although it didn't come from him because it was before him. He says, you circumcise the child on the Sabbath. So according to the law, you had to be circumcised on the eighth day. So what happens if, it's only seven days in the week, right? So what happens if the eighth day after birth is the Sabbath? Well, you have to break the law to keep it, right? You have to circumcise your child on the Sabbath. 
And he says, you do this all the time. Now, if a child can be circumcised on the Sabbath, something small, right? So that the law of Moses may not be broken. Why are you angry with me for healing the whole man? So he's using this argument from the lesser to the greater, right? So you have this, you guys do this one little thing, which is circumcised, which happens a bazillion times every day in the world. And you have this uh, one little thing that you do on the Sabbath so that you can obey the law of Moses. Yet I heal an entire broken man. And you guys get mad. Why? It's a great question, right? Jesus asks the best questions, especially when they're directed at someone else. Uh, Not when they're pointed at me. But we'll get to that later. So, but he says, listen, this is what you're doing. And then he says in verse 24, stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment or judge righteously. So Jesus comes up and you've got this group of guys and he in secret comes up and then he unsecrets himself and becomes public. And uh, there he is talking with these Jews and they have this discussion. Jesus is teaching something and his teaching was so amazing that it caused them to say, how did this happen? And I want to look at, uh, I think something that popped out for me for this was this, that Jesus is, uh, he was outside, he's outside of our systems. He's outside of their system. He was outside of the Jewish rabbinical theological training way of doing things. He's outside of their paradigms, right? John makes this clear as a bell that Jesus is God. You cannot read the book of John with any ounce of trying to figure out what it means and not come away with the reality that John is saying Jesus is God. John is also saying Jesus is a man. It's the mystery of the incarnation. So that means that Jesus, unique in all of history and all of creation, as the, the God-man, that he is fully man and fully God. So his deity gives him the authority to judge every single system, right? That's what God's sovereignty really means, that he, he, needs, he is accountable to no one. He doesn't need to ask permission for anything. Uh, he, God does not need to give me a permission slip to ask if he can do something. He doesn't need my approval for any single thing that he does. He needs no one's approval. He needs no one's okay. He needs no one's, may you please do this. No, he's God. He can do what he wants. Now, glory to him, he is good. Everything that he does is good. The Bible says he is good and does good. So that everything that he does in the execution of his will, whether we understand it or not, is good. Okay. Which means that he can come in and and judge a system of government, of whatever, whether or not it's a good system or not. And that is judged according to how it aligns with God's system. Does that make sense? He has the authority to do that. Jesus does because he's God. But because he is a man, he has the credibility to say the same thing. I don't know if you remember that we looked back at the reality that Jesus, no person can look at Jesus and say, you don't know what it's like to be a person. He does. The Bible says he was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Every person can go to Jesus and say, you know what it's like. You know what it's like to suffer. You know what it's like to, all these things. He was hungry. He was beaten. He was tortured. He was rejected. He, all of these things. He knows what it's like. He has the credibility to say that so that no one can look to him and say, you haven't walked in my shoes. So Jesus is outside of our systems, right? Outside of our paradigms. And because he is outside of them, he challenges them, which is what happened with the Jews. Jesus is coming in totally outside of their way of doing things. 
He comes in, he did not receive, he didn't go through their schools. He wasn't under their authority. So they cannot, they have no concept for how he could know these things about God if they did not teach it to him. That's what legalistic systems do. They say, you have to come in our way and do it our way or you're not one of us. Jesus comes in and says, I'm one of you. And there's another way I learned from God the Father. Hebrews says that he learned obedience through his suffering. Isn't that amazing? I have no idea. So many questions popping into my brain with that. But Jesus learned obedience through his suffering. That he chose as God to submit himself to human suffering so that he could learn, so that he could have, we could look to him and say, you know what it's like to be human. It's unfathomable, unfathomable to me that Jesus, the deserving creator of all things, who deserves all of our glory, all of our praise would do that. There is a, uh, there's a little book called, I mean, when I say little, I mean it's a teeny little, thin little book written by, um, by J.B. Phillips. And uh, he also did a translation of the New Testament in the 70s or something. But it's a teeny little book called Your God is Too Small. And in that book, there's a section where he is, uh, he's talking about, I wonder how an outsider would view meaning an unbeliever, would view all of the divisions in the church, right? The divisions among our, our uh, denominations. And he gives examples of the ways, things that have divided us, like you know, how we take the Lord's Supper or when we take it or whatever, how we, our order of worship, all these things. And he says, the tragedy of these examples is not the difference of opinion, because we're going to have those until Jesus comes back. The tragedy is not the differences of opinion, But the outrageous folly and damnable sin of trying to regard God as the party leader of a particular point of view. He continues to say, No denomination has a monopoly of God's grace, and none has an exclusive recipe for producing Christian character. It is quite plain, I love this, it is quite plain that the real God takes no notice whatsoever of the boxes. It is quite plain that the real God takes no notice whatsoever of the boxes. See, the Jews had their boxes, man. Woo! They had the best boxes ever. Like, they even wore little boxes hanging out from their foreheads. I mean, they had, they were the, the master box makers. And Jesus is coming in and saying, I don't fit in your box, fellas. You, your box is constructed by the law. You don't even keep it. So how can you judge me? when you don't even keep the law that you've used to construct your entire paradigm. That's what legalism does. Legalism, loosely defined, is probably any human effort to earn or maintain my acceptance before a holy God, right? Any human effort to earn or maintain my acceptance before God. You are not acceptable to God, and I am not either, apart from the finished work of Christ on the cross. You are utterly unacceptable to God and his enemy. But Jesus came and paid. That's what all of these songs we were singing are about, that the price was paid on the cross and that we have access to a holy God because of Jesus. Unfettered, unlimited access. We can approach the throne of grace with bold confidence because we do it through Jesus. But we did not make that. We did not attain that and we cannot maintain it either. Grace means that I could not earn my salvation and I cannot maintain it either. I am utterly powerless to do it. 
So no amount of rules that I keep, no amount of, well, if I read my Bible this much, or I attend this much, or I tithe this much, or I do such and such, or I give this amount of shoes to the poor, whatever. None of that is what God wants. Just read the Old Testament. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. That's old school, folks. That's not just in the New Testament. That's because that's who God is. He desires the heart of his children. That is what he wants. And so Jesus comes in to challenge a broken system. He comes in to challenge it. Their response to that is that they want to kill him, and eventually do, for a couple days. And then he comes back, and he's coming back again. And when he comes back again, he's also going to judge all of our stupid systems. So what does it look like for us to come up to the Lord and say, I want to reject all systems that I live under, or paradigms, or norms, or schedules, or whatever you have created in your life, look from a global, to a, a national, to a local, to a uh, uh, in your house, to in your own self, what system do you use? Are you willing to come to Jesus and say, I surrender to your system? And I say this, I want to think of two words. What that looks like is surrendered obedience. Go back to verse 17. Jesus says, if anyone chooses to do God's will. It's fascinating language, right? If anyone chooses, choosing, that is a willful surrender, right? I choose to do this. Is anyone, is that out of compulsion? No, that's why you asked that at weddings, right? Because anybody, is somebody paying you to do this? You know, you're getting, no. It's out of, you want to choose, I surrender, and then to do. That is obedience. Obedience is what we do. If anyone in surrendered obedience comes to God and say, I want to do your will. Well, you'll find out whether Jesus' teaching comes from God or whether he's just making stuff up. It is surrendered obedience because that is the demonstration of our love in the Bible. Let's look at what Jesus did. He's our model, right? Jesus walked in surrendered obedience obedience to the Father, to section at such an extent that he was able to say, nothing that I do is my own. The things that I'm teaching, they're not mine either. Nothing that he did was his own thing. Everything that he did was exactly what the Father wanted him to do. He was absolutely surrendered to the will of his Father, and he walked in surrendered obedience all the days of his life, the only person to ever do that. So we often seek knowledge, right, in the Bible. I want to understand this or something. And the pursuit of knowledge, as Paul says, will just puff person up, just make them arrogant. There's lots of jerks graduating seminary that come out, and they're just, they know lots of stuff, but man, you don't want to be around them, right? Uh, And so knowledge can puff up. But knowledge is supposed to lead us to love. That's what it's supposed to do. You know Jesus. You understand what little you know. Let's say you just know, like at the level of a five-year-old, Jesus loves me and he died for me. That, in the human heart, causes us, creates in us a love for him. That's how it works. That love is supposed to be expressed in surrender. As we know Jesus, as we love him, we have a desire to surrender to him. Well, the Spirit leads us to surrender to him. I have a fleshly desire to not. That surrender leads me to understanding. 
And that understanding leads me to know more of who he is, leads me to love him more, leads me to surrender to him. And it's a cycle that we all live in. Where that cycle breaks down is not the knowing or the loving. Like, you can't take that away. So you can't take away what you already know. You can't unsee it, as I say to my kids all the time. So you've got love for Jesus. But what, where that process breaks down is in my willingness to surrender. Now, let me ask you a question. When Jesus says, if you will ask anything in my name, I will do it. There's been all kinds of books written about what that means. But for sure what it does mean is that if you ask me to do something I want you to do, I'll help you. Does that make sense? So does Jesus want me to choose to do God's will? Yes. Yes, he does. Uh, Jesus wants you to choose to do his will. Plain and simple. So if you have a hard time with that, what are you supposed to do? He asked Jesus for help. Yeah, he's not actually playing a game. He's not up there going, ooh, maybe they'll figure it out. Um, and then they'll, then they'll get a blessing. You know, you got to do the certain dance and make the do the... No, no he's, he's, he's told us, it's called the Bible. He's told us what to do. Um, so Romans, Paul talks about this in Romans, right? I love Romans. I don't understand a bunch of it, but it's great. So Romans 12.1, after 11 chapters of doctrine and theology... He says this, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, and I want you to think about uh, surrendered obedience. I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Fascinating language, right? Holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act or service of worship. Do not, be con- do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. That word uh, conform means to be pushed into a mold. Do not conform any longer to the pattern or the paradigm of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Do you see surrender and obedience in there? Uh, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Climb up on the altar and, and die to yourself every day. That's what he's saying. Climb up on the altar and every day deny yourself and die to yourself. That's your living sacrifice. It's living because you're, you're still alive. And so it's not like God's murdering you every day. Don't be weird about it. But it's, it, is, it is a picture of us to see, oh, I need to deny myself. I need to die to myself every day. It's your, that is how we actually worship the Lord, which is not exactly what worship services often look like. But you know, many worship services where they're like, come up and die to yourself. It says, do not conform any longer. So you do that, you uh, reject being conformed to the pattern of the world, and you're transformed by the renewing of your mind, then you will be able to test and approve God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. Do you see the connection there? If anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out. It's amazing. So many people ask me, what is God's will for my life? And I'm like, die to yourself. And well, that doesn't help me any. I'm like, well, I... I don't know what God's will is necessarily what you want to do right now, but I know he wants you to die to yourself, and then he says you'll figure it out. He'll teach you. The reality is that understanding is a relationship between um, the knower and the object of understanding, okay? That's the way it is with Jesus. I have a relationship with him, but I I have to do it his way. I have to submit my system of doing things to his system. I have to. We have to submit ourselves to the paradigms of God, right? There's no other way to do it. You try to do an end run around, it doesn't work. You say, well, I don't want to believe. Well, too bad. 
I don't want to accept grace. There's no other way. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Well, I want to believe another way. Great. Doesn't work. You don't get to set the rules. Jesus does. In a football game, right, the guy, uh, if, a, if a receiver's running on the field and the defender kicks him in the feet and he falls on the ground and they throw a flag, he's like, well, I don't, I don't like your rule. I'm going to do it my own way. They say, well, fine, you can go what? Goodbye. Uh, you can go sit in the locker room. You don't get to play. Uh, because the, he doesn't set the rules. Our entire lives are built upon this. When we come to God, we feel like we can make up the own rules. Oh, I can do it my way. What does Jesus do with this? He says this kind of weird phrase at the end, almost as an aside. Stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. The uh, Phillips version of the Bible, I think, does it really good. He says, you must not judge by the appearance of the things, but by the reality. Don't judge by the appearance, but by the reality. Make a right judgment. So the Jews were looking at Jesus and they said, you're the illegitimate son of a Nazarene carpenter. How can you know this stuff? How? Jesus is saying, well, because I'm God's son and he taught me. They reject that, right? They utterly reject that. But Jesus is coming in to challenge that. But they were only judging by what they could see. Jesus, Jesus is telling them, the reality is that I am God's son. You just don't see it. Judge me according to the reality of who I am. So there's two sides to that. One is to the believer and the unbeliever alike, we must judge God according to who he actually is, right? When we look at Jesus and you say, fine, let's, let's, let's pass the judgment on Jesus. Let's make a decision about who Jesus is. It can't just be whatever amalgamated hodgepodge of stuff that some other person has said or whatever books I've read or whatever the general society thinks about Jesus. It must be, and we, it must be the, 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 the principal means of our understanding must be the revealed word of God. It is what God has given us so that we can know who he is. So we must base who we believe Jesus to be on his own revelation about himself. Jesus said, I am God's son. So he if I'm going to say what Jesus, who Jesus is, I must base it on the reality of the text, okay? A lot of people don't agree with that, but I'm not the one, it's not my opinion. I'm just saying what Jesus says. So uh, they can get mad, I guess, but it doesn't do any good to be mad at Jesus. Stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. Everything we believe about Jesus must be based in the Word of God, period, end of discussion. Now, do I experience Jesus in my walk with him? Yes. Yes, you do. Does that experience vary person to person? Yes, it does. We need to always check our experience against the reality of the scripture. Does that get a little fuzzy? Sure does. Uh, but if you're walking with Jesus and wanting to know him through the word, I think you're going to be okay. To an unbeliever, judge Jesus according to what he said about himself, not what somebody else says about him. Don't worry about what I say. Open the Bible and read it. Just read about Jesus. To your unbelieving friends, I've said this before, just take them to Jesus. Just say, hey, let's, I know you believe Jesus was a, is, a, is a mystical, mythological character or whatever, and let's just read about what the Bible says. And, just, and I'm telling you, the Word of God is powerful and will transform how people think. On a practical level, uh, I think that Christians don't judge rightly very well. Uh, social media is a microscope that has revealed the deficit of our character deeply in the in the American Christian culture. Facebook and Twitter and all those other things. Let me ask you a question. If you were to ask an unbeliever, what are Christians like? Hmm? 
the first thing, man, that comes to mind, they say they're judgmental. And that's almost the first thing I hear. Christians are judgmental. Jesus just said, stop judging my mere appearances and make a right judgment. We do it all the time. Somebody says something on Facebook or posts fake news or whatever, and we boom, we blow up, and it's like, oh, and it ruins our whole day. I've got to flame everybody and say, well, you don't, you don't, we're, Remember what Philip said? The outrageous folly and damnable sin of trying to regard God as the party leader of our particular point of view. He doesn't throw the word damnable around, right? It's a heavy word. God is not the particular party leader of our particular point of view. I don't have to say, well, I believe this, Jesus, so now you've got to come alongside and support me. We do it all the time. Proof text. Well, this verse says, da 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 Well, this verse says, da 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 God says, I want mercy and not sacrifice. Go and live that out. Right? Just take that one verse and live it out in your daily life. Social media has revealed in us this incredible, unsurrendered life to Jesus. Because the surrendered person walking in surrendered obedience to Jesus makes a right judgment. Oh, it's brutal when you study the Bible. Because it's true. The reason we're not making right judgments as believers is because we're not walking in obedience to Jesus. Plain and simple. That is the great problem across the entire spectrum of Christianity in the world today. It's a problem in Guatemala. It's a problem in Africa. It's a problem here in Oklahoma City. Believers don't walk and surrender to Jesus, and it gets lived out in our daily lives over and over and over again. If we were, then the unbeliever would look at the lives of Christians and say, I don't agree with what they say, but man, they, may, they are wise and discerning, especially on social media. I mean, it's laughable, right, to even think that. Christians are terrible on social media. I mean, like, mean. Why are we mean to people on a computer? Why? I mean, come on. I have four children. Like, a lot of our work is don't be mean to each other. We even have a song, Be kind to one another, Ephesians 4.32. We, we have these songs because, I mean, we, and my kids could probably sing it to most of all of us. Let me say something. Next time you're on social media and you're getting ready to tweet or post something, choose to do God's will. Say, Jesus, I surrender to you in my heart, my mind, my soul, my strength. I want to do your will. I want to make a right, righteous judgment. I want to judge according to the truth and I want to respond in kindness and grace. Do that and see what difference it makes. When you are responding to your spouse and they are having a bad day, say that to Jesus. Jesus, I want to surrender to you. I need your power to be kind. Please help me be kind. When you're responding to your children, Jesus, I need to surrender to you. I need your power to be kind and gracious. I need discernment. Please help me. When you're responding to a coworker, a friend who holds a different political point of view, you, there's a list of any time you come in contact with another human, you need Jesus' help to do it well. Okay? Jesus taught things that amazed the most learned people of the time. They were brilliant, the Jews. They knew the word. They had the word of God memorized to an extent that you and I have no concept of. They lived it and breathed it. They sewed it into their clothing. They hung it from their hair. And yet they utterly missed the point of Jesus. 
he is outside of our systems. He's outside of our paradigms. And that means that he challenges the way that we do everything at a personal, familial, cultural, societal level. He comes to challenge all of that and he calls us to align our way of life with who he is. And that is what he's calling us to today. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Oh, it's hard, Lord, to hear these things. Because I confess to you, Lord, that I so poorly surrender to you on a daily basis. I live most of my days in the power of my own flesh. And it's frustrating and it wears me out. So I, I guess I just come and I ask for all of us today that you would help us to surrender and submit to you. You are the Lord of all creation. The Bible says that everything was created by you and that you hold all things together. So we come to you and we submit to you. We want to surrender all to you and ask you to fill us with your power to walk rightly with you, to deny yourself, to take up our cross, and to follow you. Would you help us do that, Lord Jesus? In your name we pray.